Welcome to the Writer's Right Podcast, the show where every writer has the right to speak their mind. I'm your host, Joshua Howe, and as always, we'll be giving attention to the last thing my guest has written and their writing process. Today's guest is one of my fellow Raptors Republic writers, a contributor to Vice Sports, a Raps 905 aficionado, and uh, one of the most criminally underfollowed people on Raptors Twitter. It's Louis Zatzman. How are you doing, man? Hey, dude, I'm doing great. Thank you so, so much for chatting. Appreciate the intro. Makes me sound sound great. <laughs> well, you are. Um, I'm wondering, what's it like in Toronto right now? Is it freezing cold? Has that snap come yet? Um, I know everybody was freaking out about how Kawhi is going to react to it. <laughs> yeah, honestly, it's uh, it's blue outside right now. It's pretty. It's sunny. It is chilly, but I mean, the heat's on in my building, so I'm not complaining yet. Awesome. That's pretty good. It's it's kind of the same here, like three hours outside of Toronto. So yeah, it's it's all right here. I think it's a little warmer, but uh, yeah, I'm not I'm not minding it at all. It was like blizzarding yesterday. Oh jeez. Um, yeah. So the piece I want to talk to you about is the one you wrote on Serge Ibaka just the other day. Mm-hmm. It's up on Raptors Republic. If you haven't read it, you can go there and read it now. It's called Diving Into the Source of Serge Ibaka's Renewal. What a fascinating topic this is to begin the season just in general about Ibaka's sort of resurgence <laughs> from where from where he was before. I guess we could say, we could ask how hungry is he in terms of a basketball sense. <laughs> that Devlin sure does. Yeah, absolutely. So I think I was one of like a lot of people who thought the Raptors would find it very difficult to move Ibaka in the summer uh, and that if they were able to, they should. And it's mostly not just because of the the playoffs in which, you know, he had a few good games and most of the game, but most of his games were rather poor. And he had a lot of ups and downs during the season, especially on nights where he didn't get a lot of rest. So, you know, I was I was looking at it as just one of those people that I thought his, you know, coming into this season, he'd still be on the team because it would be, be really tough for him to move with his salary. I thought his minutes should be managed better this season and probably that he should be used less. And here we are, and now he's you know he's around the same amount of minutes as last season, but his usage percentage has skyrocketed. It's up to 25, which is a career high by far. His previous high was around 20 in 2016, 2017. And yet, the Raptors are 10.6 points per 100 possessions better with him on the floor. He's just been incredible. Yeah, man. I mean, I, I was right with you. I defended him a lot last year, but it just seemed like he was a different guy from who they thought they traded for. Um, and he's a different guy entirely now. It's it's not like he's become the guy that they thought they got from Orlando. Um, you know that power forward who could you know switch onto the perimeter, stroke three, and dominate inside. Uh, he's a center now and a really 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 good one. And all these changes in his career, I very few could have expected. I think. Yeah, it, it's it's sort of shocking, and yet I mean, I so I guess you have to give a lot of credit to the uh, notion that, you know, switching him to center full-time has impacted him so positively, um, just getting down low, taking more shots in the post this season, as opposed to being more perimeter-oriented like he was last season and shooting more threes and stuff like that. Yeah, I think there, that's a big part of the change. I mean, it obviously is. The biggest part is that as the center, the Raptors used the center in the offense a lot more than they used Ibaka last year. I mean, you saw it last night with Valanchunas and Lowry. The Raptors just used the center a huge amount in the pick and roll, right? And uh, 
And Siakam has been great as the power forward, but Ibaka, Ibaka struggled with that last year. And uh, and obviously the change has helped him, but it's been a lot more than that. I mean, his shot selection has changed. He's looking to pass less, which uh, I thought would be a, tr- a problem because last year they, uh, they you know, the culture reset and they wanted everyone to move the ball. And everyone bought in. Lowry bought in after a little bit, but Ibaka struggled with that for a long time. Um, and it seemed like he just never really took to creating for others. And this year, it seems like they're not asking him to, to. They're asking him to be himself, to shoot, to finish plays, to be involved in them. And he's way more comfortable in that. So it's not just being a center. It's also their expectations of him as a player and his choices as well on the floor. Yeah, even his, you know, it's funny. You talk about his vision. And there's been like a couple instances uh, this season where I've noticed that it, it seems like his vision's improved or maybe it's just the situations he's finding himself in, you know, where he like will come off of a pick and roll with Lowry or something and he runs into a couple more guys than he thought maybe uh, he would. And then there's somebody open in the corner and he turns and he actually finds them in the corner. And I go, wow, I, I don't remember Ibaka being able to do that very much. And I, I don't even know, was it last night or recently he had a game with like four assists. I can't remember if that was like last night and I'm just blanking, but um, yeah. Yeah, he's like, there's been a couple of nights where, you know, he's had a few assists and that's usually not a part of his game at all, at least not in the time he's been in Toronto. But yeah, it's, his vision's been um, kind of impressive because no one's really expecting it. It's not really something that they're asking him to do, like you're saying, but it's there, which is kind of neat. Yeah, I think it's a lot easier to make the pass from the short roll, you know, when you, you're getting it, watching the defense rotate than it is to pump fake and drive from the perimeter and then make the kick out. So it's, it's sort of asking a center to pass to the perimeter, whereas he was acting like a, you know, perimeter or perimeter oriented guy, which is just way harder to, to ask him to make passes uh, like he was doing last year. Yeah, definitely. You mentioned in the article, his uh, improved finishing ability, especially on layups and, and dunks. He has, an 82% accuracy rate on layups and dunks this season as opposed to 65.7% last season. <laughs> That's crazy. The guy's yes, creating, yeah. he's, he's creating like, what is it, 1.56 points per possession as the role man? Yeah. Um, which is 87th percentile, which is like, I mean, can you can you guess what his, I don't know if you looked this up or not, but do you know what his percentile was last season? Oh, God. Like 60th, <laughs> worse maybe? 40th. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's some kind of improvement. <laughs> well, he just didn't hit. Guy. It's crazy how much better he is at screening. It really is. So that's the thing. So it's funny uh, as I'm going along. Um, this literally right before I'm taking notes on your article. And I'm I'm reading this, enjoying it, and right before you and the article get to the point of talking about his screening, I write down this whole thing about you know him being the the primary big on the floor and as such he has to be the screener the uh, primary screener for guys like Kyle Lowry and Lowry is a player who loves to hit his big man if he can mm-hmm. if he sees him you know rolling to the basket or he knows Ibaka can pick and pop and he's very good at the elbow he'll hit him there um, so it's it's funny that yeah his screens have been so much better even to start the beginning of the season I noticed they were still they just weren't as firm it's like it wasn't it's like he wasn't as as interested in really going out and um, setting hard screens, but as the season's gone along and he's sort of, you know, um, been tuned into this is his role now and he needs to do this for the team to be successful, he's done it. And uh, he's 
suddenly so much better at going out and being that initiatory uh, screener, especially knowing, I think, you know, that he's going to get the basketball if he does it. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Just to go back to you mentioning his finishing numbers, I didn't get into regression a ton in my article because it's kind of hard to, I mean, I write more descriptively, I think, than predictively. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's one area where I think he probably will regress. Finishing, you know, dunks and layups at over 80% probably won't <laughs> continue. You know, that's a, that's Andre Drummond level finishing. He just doesn't have the athleticism yeah. to continue that. But what really, I think, impacts his uh, increased efficiency this year is that he's just not settling for those one dribble pull-ups, those turnaround fadeaways. He's jumping towards the rim. He's taking his shots into the paint. Um, And what stood out to me in those charts that you mentioned wasn't the increased finishing percentages for dunks and layups. It was the increased frequency that he chose to go to floaters uh, and hook shots instead of jump shots. And he's just such a better finisher with those shot choices. And that's clearly been something that he's worked on this year to get to those shots he prefers. Yeah, he's definitely not taking as many shots in isolation. He's sort of being forced almost in a way, in a good way, to get into the flow of the offense. And it's it's led to a lot more of him, uh, as the kids say, pulling moves out of his bag. Um, <laughs> moves that I'm not even sure I remember him having last season because of how many jump shots he took, how many, three, yeah. how many three-pointers he took floating around the perimeter. Like, he, his sweeping hook shot is really good. He uses it a lot now. I've noticed that he, when he gets that sort of initiatory, um, initiatory, initial contact on uh, other players, especially bigs, if he's not, uh, if, if he has a small on him, it's pretty much he just overpowers them and backs them down and hits them with a quick hook. But if he's got uh, a big on him, say like Al Horford, who's like also, you know, significantly mobile, and Ibaka's not super fast, if he can sort of get that first bit of contact leaning into him and then once he gets that feeling and the defender's thrown a little bit off balance, that's when he's able to use his length and sort of rise up for those floaters that you're talking about. Um, yeah, absolutely. Are, he's been so much better at those type of shots this season. Like, I don't remember him taking very many of them last season. It'd be like occasional, like he'd take a couple, you know, a floater to a game. But And now, especially in the, you know, pick and roll, like we're talking about uh, with Kyle Lowry, he's taking a lot more of those floaters just because they're there for him. Yeah, he wouldn't push the issue last year. He'd settle. And that's one thing where, I mean, Valanciunas is obviously an unbelievable roller as well. Mm-hmm. Um, great in the paint. But that's one thing that Ibaka has a huge advantage on him is when he catches on the roll a few feet outside of the paint. Valanciunas will often slow it down, pump fake, then drive, or he'll dish back. He'll continue the offense. But Ibaka is much better at using that momentum to get to the rim. He has better body control at full speed. And that's something that I think that's been a huge part of Kyle Lowry's assists is being able to hit the roller earlier because he has options now throughout the entire play. Whereas last year, years before, if he's going to make those early choices in the pick and roll, it was you either pull up or you swing to the other other side of the floor. Now that he can hit his roller earlier and expect uh, plays to still be made, it, it really helps that pick and roll. Yeah, it really does. And you mentioned that um, 40.4% of Ibaka's touches are coming from Lowry, which is pretty similar to last season. Yeah. So that's that's pretty cool still knowing that even with the switch role, 
you know, it almost tells you a little bit more about Lowry as well. But just that this is the kind of player he is. He's always looking for to find his guys in the right spots, especially the bigs. And that, you know, Lowry and Ibaka pick and pop this season has been pretty deadly. Like uh, Ibaka has been so surprising getting to getting to the basket on the roll and and actually pulling out moves in the post. But his jump shot, even though his three-pointers have, uh, you know, it'll probably go back up, like you mentioned in the article, but his efficiency on threes right now isn't very good, and he's not taking nearly as many. But in the mid-range, uh, he's been fantastic. And those, those pick-and-pops, as soon as he gets to the elbow, he's pretty much money from there. He's been he's been so good. He's had multiple games now where he has, you know, he had a game, was it two games or just the one game where he didn't miss a single shot? Um, and there's been a couple of games where he's missed, like, two or three shots, and uh, other than that, he's been on fire, and he's just been so good. Get once he get gets into that area, touch has just been incredible. And that's I mean, he's being good from the mid range, right? Like he was mm-hmm. one of the elite mid range shooters last year as well. But just when he, so much less of his offense is jump shooting, then it's good, right? Like if Steph Curry took eighty percent of his shots from the mid range, we'd be a little less impressed. But because Ibaka is forcing the issue when he does settle for the mid-range and he's still so effective, it looks way better. Yeah, 100% it does. Um, I also wanted to mention, I wrote this down because it was interesting. Obviously, Pirtle's not on the team anymore. And last season, um, you know, with the bench, he was sort of the initial uh, screener for a lot of those plays and stuff like that. Um, so he's gone, and now Nurse has decided you know, to split up uh, Ibaka and JV most of the time. So that's part of what I'm about to say. That's why that matters. But uh, Ibaka's screen assist numbers have gone up like a full, a full number this season. They've gone up to 2.4 from 1.4. That's I mean, you know, he's usually a lot of the times the one big on the floor and and playing the center spot, obviously. But like, it's still, still, you know, something that's really cool for him. That's. Um, that matters a lot, that is, uh, you know, it's there, it's tangible, it's something you can actually look at to say, like, this is, you know, this is what he's doing. I mean, you have that example in your article, the video of him setting a screen last season as compared to this season, and, like, I <laughs> I literally laughed out loud, like, watching the video from last season. Like, it's so sad, it really is, because you know that he can do it, like, he didn't just get that much stronger from last season or whatever, not at this point in his career. It just looks like he's, he's setting such a half-hearted screen um, last year and this year. You know, he's doing it with assertiveness. And, yeah, it's just it's something I just I noticed and wanted to point out. No, I know. And a story about finding that clip, actually. So when I choose fil- clips from this year, I try to watch the game and cut it myself. Last year, it's a lot harder to do that. I don't remember which game happened when. So last year, I'll usually go to the you know box scores on NBA.com advanced stats because they have video of almost everything that happened. And you can choose Ibaka's six attempted threes in this play, and, you, uh, and then you uh, click on all six, and they have video of all six, right? And so I went through all of his attempted threes last year, just trying to find one where he set a screen – faded and shot and I went through probably 40 or 50 before I found that where it was just him meandering around the perimeter it was really crazy watching film from last year just his threes over and over and over and it was he was never involved in the play like he was a bad screener and he never did it it was wild yeah he was essentially a spot-up guy last season yeah and it's just 
that's not the right way to use a Baca at all. I mean, I think a lot of people thought about, you know, bringing a Baca in, everybody thought about even, even coming off of Orlando, where honestly, a lot of people probably hadn't watched him during his time in Orlando. And there was the whole, well, he's just on a bad team, whatever. But the thing with Ibaka has always been his defensive game. Like, that's what everybody's interested in when you talk about Serge Ibaka, mostly because of his time in OKC, and he was a really great defender for them. And, you know, he's still a good defender, especially depending on the lineups he's in. But his offensive game has really evolved so much, and I'm not sure people um, expected it to do so in this way and and that it could have been uh, better than it was last season. Like, I'm not sure a lot of guys people saw him more than a spot-up guy, especially when he was, you know, setting screens that were like that. But I mean, you know, if you're basically being used that way, that you're only a spot-up guy and um, you're not being involved in plays and whatever, like I might set half-hearted screens too. Like you're not going to get the ball that much unless the, the play breaks down or you just happen to be wide open. You know, like his game isn't to be a sharpshooter from the perimeter. Like he's not CJ Miles. Um, yeah. So I think in that sense, Nurse has done a good job having him get involved more that way. Um, so that's been yeah, really cool. That's, sorry, go ahead. No, I was just going to say that's, that's I'd like, this is the, basically the way to get the max efficiency out of Ibaka. And that's what I, what's interesting is we can all see that now. Like, you know, I wrote the piece about that's the way to get the most efficiency out of him. But props to Nurse because I wouldn't have guessed that was the way to get a max efficiency out of him is use him more, right? It seemed like he yeah. wasn't good enough when he was being used, um, like he didn't set screens. He wasn't super involved in the offense and he was a solid shooter last year, you know, 36% or something league average mm-hmm. from your center. That's solid, but really impressive that the coaching staff did identify how to maximize his efficiency because it wasn't self-evident. Yeah, it definitely wasn't. So yeah, definitely props to nurse on that. Um, I think it's really cool. So in, in some ways it's, it's been out of necessity, because our the Raptors front court rotation is pretty thin, admittedly, but um, and the move of Siakam to power forward in the starting lineup um, also weakens the bench a little bit, and so uh, Nurse decided to split up JV and Ibaka. But it's interesting when you talk about that uh, because one of the things fans have gone back and forth and pundits as well on is you know should we be seeing more of Ibaka JV together like we did last season. Because, you know, in the limited time, which has been extremely limited, um, they played together a little bit last night, actually, uh, recording this on Thursday, so I'm talking about the Hawks game on Wednesday. They've been really good against together, and that's not a surprise because the Raptors starting lineup last year, which we have a huge sample of for those minutes, they were really good. And, you know, even though uh, Ibaka was being used differently um, offensively, there was still a really good lineup um, for various reasons. So we know that pairing can work, but one of the things I actually noticed even last night is I wonder if what Nurse has done with Ibaka on his own is giving him more confidence to um, do some of the same things even when JV is on the floor with him because I noticed a couple trips down, he would still set, you know, be the initial screener, the primary screener, and set some really good screens for Lowry still, and then Lowry had more had more options going down. Like you never knew if he was suddenly going to hit you with a JV pick and roll, if he was going to hit you with an Ibaka pick and pop, like he, he had more options. And if you're going to give Lowry the options, especially against the team like the Hawks, it becomes problematic really quick. Yeah, that's a good point. That's the fact that Ibaka, you know, was successful in that lineup last year. Um, 
does sort of clash a little bit with what we've been saying about him not being used perfectly in his role. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think it's important to point out that even though he was floating around the perimeter a lot, even though he was relegated to being a release valve, he still was pretty good at it. And the mm-hmm. Raptors were still better than other teams when he was on the floor. Yeah. So um, this criticism isn't to say he was a, you know, a negative last year. Um, but lo- exactly like you said, I completely agree. You know, him evolving his game really has helped those lineups as well. And, uh, and having those options for Lowry, like you say, because he can still get a shot off with that, uh, with two bigs on the floor. And so with him becoming the best passer in the league this year, then, uh, then it's deadly, even with Ibaka and JV on the floor, like you said. Yeah, I think it's interesting. So when you talk about some of the bench issues that the Raptors have had and potential ways to fix them, uh, and you're talking about rotations and the idea that, you know, Lowry and Kawhi as the two best players on the team, depending on how long Nurse wants to keep them together to get that chemistry rolling. Um, And we've seen him do this a little bit already in certain games, but um, staggering their minutes I think is important. And I think, though, you know, the idea of of keeping Lowry with Ibaka is probably more useful than keeping Kawhi with Ibaka if you were going to split those two up, especially with... I I do think, um, this is me reading into it a little bit, but I do think Kawhi still... Um, as he's trying to find his way back, I think he's being a little aggressive looking for his own shot. A lot of people have talked about, well, why isn't Kawhi passing? I think he is getting a, he's a little frustrated sometimes with things that he knows he can do and just isn't quite there yet. His legs aren't quite back yet. Um, he is uh, taking a lot of shots when he's out there, um, like on a lot of JV screens, which have been really good, the Kawhi JV pick and roll. Um, there's not a lot of Kawhi passing to JV out of those yet. One, because Kawhi's probably going to score if you give him that much space. But two, I know he he hasn't quite developed that that sense of comfort yet. I think, and with uh, Ibaka being more of you know someone that you you can rely evenly on the pick and pop as well as the as well as the pick and roll. I think for someone like uh, Kawhi, like it'd be just easier, and he'd be getting more space from JV. I, I think if you're going to split those two up, it'd probably be Lowry and uh, Ibaka. But I think that combination of those two, um, spending some time with the bench, could really really boost the the Raptors just going forward. That's just something I've been thinking about since watching uh, watching these two play together. Yeah, I agree. Um, Kawhi, I mean, JV sets such devastating screens. Kawhi can pull up for that 8-10 to 10 footer pretty much whenever he wants. There's a big difference between an 8-10 to 10 footer and a 15-17 to 17 footer. Like, both are sort of mid-range jump shots, but 8-10, mm-hmm. to 10, he, he's a very efficient scorer. Um, the other thing that really has nothing to do with the Baca, but the bench is never going to be efficient till Fred becomes a better passer to the big in yeah. the pick and roll. Yeah. Um, I mean, DeLon ran most of the pick and rolls last year, and he and Pirtle had great chemistry, mm-hmm. but he doesn't seem to have it with JV yet. Um, JV was is a better screener and a better finisher than Pirtle, but for whatever reason, they haven't figured out the chemistry, and Fred just... He's been forcing a lot of shots out of the pick and roll. He he hasn't hit JV nearly as much as he should because the fact that he can pull up from three, he can create his own threes. Mm-hmm. He's a much more natural pick and roll handler, and uh, he's got to figure that out. He he needs to look for people better, and whether he's with Ibaka, whether he's with JV, whether Kawhi is there to prop up the floor, 
that's one area of Fred's game that he definitely needs to uh, to improve. Yeah, it's been difficult. Um, I, I do think it's. It sounds like an excuse, but I do think Fred is battling some kind of some injuries. It might be more than just the toe thing. I don't really know, but um, mm. and, th- and those toe injuries tend to linger a lot too. But yeah, I have noticed that for sure as well. Um, you'd think like a lot of people describe Fred's game as sort of like a mini Lowry, like um, mm. you know. In a lot of ways, he's the especially last season. He was the engine for that second unit. He made everything go, and you notice that a lot in the few nights that he wasn't there for them. And especially with Siakam, whose playmaking and all-around game has really increased, and he's not playing as many minutes with the bench. You really need to rely on someone like Van Vliet or a Wright. But like even in the pick and roll with Valanciunas and Delon Wright, I mean, you know, there's that easier option of going under the screen because you know Wright's you want to make him shoot. He's not necessarily a great three-point shooter. Uh, Fred should be able to play that role at least a little better because he can shoot fairly consistently. Uh, consistently, uh, he hasn't been as great this season. Obviously, his whole game's been off, but theoretically, he should be a pretty good fit in the pick and roll with Alan Shunis. Yeah, it just hasn't been there, um, and it's it's kind of weird to see. So, it's hopefully he uh, he finds his way back. I think he will, but I really do think it's a lot of that's just injuries that he's not talking about. Yeah, and part of it is. It's a new skill for him. Like what made yeah. him so great last year was not dominating the ball. It was running around off the ball. It was yeah. immediately making decisions when he catches, either going into a secondary action or pinging the ball around or shooting. Mm-hmm. Um, and he was great at that. He was a great passer, but uh, not really primary offensive passer. Yeah. Like he wasn't creating offense out of nothing. True. Yeah. And he's been asked to do that this year. And I, mm-hmm. I mean, I think he'll get better, but Lowry wasn't this good six years ago, seven years ago. So it takes time. I mean, he is a mini Lowry in a lot of ways, but definitely takes time for him to develop those really advanced PhD level basketball skills. Yeah, definitely better as a secondary, uh, secondary creator off ball. That's why he worked so well in the Raptors closing lineup last season. Um, mm-hmm. was with Lowry as uh, most of the time an in, uh, initiator and he was off ball and able to you know be the next guy in a lot of those plays so yeah definitely yeah I, I think hopefully it'll, it'll come around to that and until that time you know if the bench really can continues to struggle I think maybe Nurse will look into trying to get um, a sort of a secondary uh, playmaker out there um, well not just secondary playmaker but more of an initiary guy like Lowry or Kawhi out there just more often but uh, but we'll see. So, uh, what did I want? Oh yeah. Okay. So, it's early, but um, <laughs> I like this conversation because I, I think it's really interesting. You mentioned um, Abaka potentially being in the All Star conversation. That could be that could be interesting. Yeah, <laughs> that was maybe more tongue in cheek. I think he's <laughs> uh, in the borderline. You know, he'll get some votes. Yeah. Uh, I don't think he'll be. In the All Star game, even if he keeps this game up, yeah, he would be probably in the group of five to ten closest uh, to the bottom of the list that don't make it. But uh, I mean, who would have thought that even last year, right? Because mm-hmm. uh, the Raptors, Kawhi and Lowry will definitely be in the All Star game. Yeah. Um, and here's a, I think, a more interesting question: If the Raptors were to have a third All Star. Would it be Siakam or would it be Ibaka this year? Ooh, that's pretty tough. I, I, I'm I leaning Siakam, but that's just because of 
just how much he's improved overall. But yeah, I don't know. Ibaka too. Ah, yeah, that is really tough. I'm leaning Siak. Also, Siakam would be so much fun in an all-star game setting. Yeah, when nobody plays defense, him sprinting the floor, I mean, he'll get so many times. Yeah. <laughs> It'd be awesome. Maybe he'd whip out some uh, specialized dunks we haven't seen yet. I want to see a Siakam windmill dunk. He can definitely do it. I know he can. He just hasn't done it yet. Yeah, he's freakishly athletic. He hasn't been the greatest in-game dunker for the Raptors, but OG as well. I mean, one day he's going to just catch a body and just get one of those power dunks over somebody, mm-hmm. and that day will be that day will be a good day. Wasn't it? I feel like my memory is getting worse day by day, but like I swear, didn't OG dunk on Drummond in that Detroit game against Detroit? Was it Drummond? He dunked on somebody this season. Well, he has been dunking a lot. Yeah, he has been a lot more than last season. Yeah, yeah. It's been it's been cool to watch, but yeah, um, Siakam too. Another thing, definitely can do uh, pull out a three hundred and sixty dunk. If he can do all these spin moves, these unguardable <laughs> spin moves, I I know it. There's somewhere in there he can do a three hundred and sixty dunk. That would be awesome to see. Well, it's just practice, right? He's just doing it on the ground first, and yeah. slowly he'll lift it off the ground. And... <laughs> he'll work his way up for sure. Yeah. Uh, so I think we've pretty much we've covered most of Ibaka. I mean, yeah, he's. Those hook moves, I remember, so last season, I remember um, every game where Ibaka would, like, if he if it was early on in the game and he was hitting some of those short hooks, uh, those turnaround hook shots, uh, that's how I knew that Ibaka was probably going to have a good night and that his legs were underneath him and, mm-hmm. and um, that, that offensively he'd be okay. Otherwise, he tended to be short on those a lot, especially on those games where it was like back-to-backs and stuff like that. This season, that hasn't been a problem because he's just been hitting everything. Do you think? Do you do you think long term this like is this like I think a lot of Raptors fans are sort of just starting to get used to this now. Like Ibaka scoring like seventeen to twenty points every night and just being hyper efficient is like is this something that's going to last long term or should we be like a little concerned that we're getting overly comfortable with Ibaka being this good? Yeah. I mean, we mentioned it earlier. We didn't really get into it, but it's a, it's a good question and one of the more worthwhile ones, right? I think the mid-range, he, he hasn't had an off game from the mid-range yet, and that just everyone does, right? Everyone has bad jump shooting games. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, he'll probably have a couple games where when he doesn't roll all the way to the rim, when he stops at the free throw line, he'll miss those shots because we haven't seen that yet, and it has to happen. But... I don't see a reason why he won't stay at least relatively efficient from 10 feet and in. Um, Because he, I mean, like we've said, he has those shots, those hooks, floaters, and he always has. He just hasn't used them. So he probably won't stay in the high 60s, you know, effective field goal percentage. But there's no reason he should drop out of the 60s total because he's a center and centers are efficient shooters. So uh, I'm probably a little more bullish than most, but I think we should be able to expect, you know, center efficiency from the starting center. Yeah, I, I think because a lot of people talk about the, um, you know, not being as concerned about Abaka, and then you ask them about the playoffs and that sort of scenario, and then they immediately sort of go, "Oh well, I don't know. Like, is he going to be? Is he going to be able to carry it into this, whatever, into that type of atmosphere?" But I think just because of how, you know, fairly profoundly the Raptors have changed the role for Ibaka, like, you get him into the playoffs, 
and I don't think this is something that can just be neutralized as easily as him being that release valve like you talked about. And, and, you know, not really knowing, like, like certain things when the Raptors were um, stunted out of certain plays last season, like, it wasn't like a Baca was just like, well, we can just do this. We can just switch over and I can run this now or do whatever. Like, there are more options for a Baca on offense this season that he can go to. And, and I think the way the Raptors are running him now is just, is going to be good on the long haul. Like, in the postseason, I think these are things that will actually carry over. I'm, I'm less concerned in, instead of more concerned that this is going to, that this is going to last in that way because uh, I really do think that, you know, again, teams aren't necessarily going, you know, going to switch to, like, all massive bigs in the playoffs. Like, that's not the way the NBA is at all anymore. So it's not like you're just going to neutralize him that way. So I, I don't think there's really a, lot, a bunch of scenarios where this can't continue going forward. So I, I do think, uh, actually, that it might be better for the long haul than it is um, concerning. And one question I think is interesting that I didn't get into at all, but his defense has been great. Do you think his, you know, defense as a center is sustainable? Could he be played off not by going big, but by going small? Yeah, yeah, that's true. I mean, it's it's one of those things where everybody talks about, like, if you were going to assume that the Raptors can make the finals, a lot of people talking about how they're going to match up with the Warriors, especially when the Warriors decide to go their, you know, super small lineup and... Mm-hmm. Um, their death lineup, um, how would the Raptors tackle that? Because, you know, you probably, I mean, it depends. Not everybody subscribes to this theory, but a lot of people would not have Valanchunas on the floor. I think he would get played off the floor. Um, some people like the idea of attacking small with bigs. But uh, defensively, yeah, that'd be really tough. Um, would Ibaka be able to hang? It, yeah, stuff like, those are some interesting questions that um, would definitely be, I think, you know, and again, it depends on the it depends on the lineup. Like when he's been in lineups, obviously, like the starting lineup where you have Siakam and and Kawhi out there, who are also um, and Siakam's got much better at this, but rebounding, they're able to help him out on that end, and they're also really good perimeter defenders. Like it helps a Vaca a lot, right? Like he doesn't have to worry as much on defense as he did last season, um, where he's being dragged out to the perimeter a lot necessarily, and and forced to decide if he's going to hedge or not, or if he's just going to drop back or or what. Um, he's got so much help now uh, with players that can switch, um, that don't necessarily have to switch. Just a lot of options there. So I think that will be really helpful in the, in the playoffs too. But yeah, and, and, and in general too, I think it's just given him a lot of confidence too. He's, he's had a lot more of those Ibaka blocks than I feel like we saw last season. Yeah. I mean, he's always been such a good like weak side shot blocker. Yeah, he really has. It's it's always fun to watch him. I like the the thumbs down celebration. It's it's pretty cool. He used to do the Matumbo finger wipe. I don't know. Did Matumbo tell him like not to do that anymore, or did he just want to come up with his own thing? I don't know. He is one of the last great, you know, shot blocking celebrators. There's not yeah. a ton of guys who really celebrate a block. No. They should, they should. Uh, defense like is, is important. They should do that. I mean and, it's funny, like the whole bench does it too. It's not just like uh, Ibaka, like you get a shot of the bench and they're all, they're all standing up with their thumbs down. It's fantastic. I love it. Yeah, absolutely. The first time Kawhi does it is going to be like, I'm going to make that my uh, desktop screensaver or something. It's going to be amazing. Well, that's when he's staying, right? That's that's him signing on the line. That's the commitment. Yeah, absolutely. Um, we, I mean, we saw something uh, pretty close to that the other night when uh, Danny Green hit that game winner, I felt like. And Kawhi had his hands in the air before it even went down. And obviously yep. he knows Danny because from the Spurs. But, like, 
Yeah, I felt like that was a really like what a what a team moment that was. Yeah, yeah, that was fantastic. And there's a picture of um, some somebody I I forget who or for what site somebody got a fantastic shot of Kawhi turning around, hands up, the ball's in the air. You see the uh, you see the shot clock. It's such a good picture. Yeah, that's. I think that was the first like great. Other than you, uh, if you just want to talk about um, you know beating the Celtics and beating the Sixers, whatever earlier in the season. But that was like one of the most fun Raptors moments I think we've had this season so far. Yeah, um, yeah. So I wanted to get into the writing part of uh, of this podcast now because um, it's it's always one of the most interesting. Uh, aspects of talking to my guests um, is getting to really get inside their heads about um, how they write and uh, the stuff they write about and and things like that. So I want to start off talking about uh, video in articles because I noticed that you use a lot of video in your in your pieces, these kind of pieces, um, even more than uh, a bunch of writers that I know. And I also really like to use video to illustrate points, um, to give the reader a tangible example of what I'm talking about, especially if I'm describing a specific play and I just want to like pull up that play or a similar one. So how much value do you think like video adds to a piece like this? Like, is this something you really like my articles need this? Like I couldn't write one without the video or how do you feel about it? That's, that's a really good question. Um, I think video is always going to be anecdotal. Um, I mean, unless you're Chris Herring and you're doing something like, you know, Tyson Chandler's tap backs was his most recent one or <laughs> Durant's shoe falling off, in which case you can just make a three or four minute video and have every single example of this in the one video. But if you're talking about a much more common occurrence like Ibaka setting a screen, video will by definition be anecdotal because you can't put them all on video. Um so it's not going to make your point for you. And I think a lot of times I read articles that I think are um, not as good as they could be that are video-based is when people point to video and it's their whole argument. Because you can find an example of Abaka running a great pick-and-roll last year and you can find an example of him running a poor one this year. Mm-hmm. But those aren't the overwhelming narratives, even though you can find video examples. So. Um, you always need to remember, I think it's anecdotal, but with that being said, um, stats are, have their own flaws, obviously. Uh, like I use a lot of NBA play data stats. Um, and when I posted this article, the one we're talking about Ibaka on Twitter, um, uh, Anna Smith, I think she's a great Raptors follower follower on Twitter. Yeah. Um, you know, she said the play data you're using does have flaws because it's not every game that's happened this season, which is a really good point. Um, and so I think neither film nor stats can be a whole argument. But together, along with, you know, good writing, then you can start having a comprehensive piece. Yeah, it's more difficult than people sometimes think, I, I think, just the idea of balance in, in writing, um, you know, the, everybody talks about there's eye test Twitter and there's there's the statistical nerds and whatever. And of course, it takes both. It takes context to really write something um, meaningful and that's good. And uh, I, I'm not. It's not always the easiest thing to do. I think you know to to go and you know you got to find 
you know, you find something either, you know, first in the stats or you find it first from the eye test. But either way, you got to find support for both of those things from the other. And that's really how you uh, come up with, um, you know, just a, a strong uh, bit of writing. And that's that's exactly what I think of every single time I'm, I'm about to, you know, add a video in is have I done the justice you know, with with the stats and with the descriptions and with then what I do know of what I've seen from watching the team, does this does this make sense? So follow up, do you spend a lot of time cutting video for articles? Like, are you, are you out there like uh, spending hours and it actually the actual writing only takes like, you know, like 15 minutes and you're spending like, you know, two hours cutting video? I've definitely done pieces like that. Um I fall back on like the pre-made NBA, the ones I was talking about need the box scores. Mm-hmm. Fall back on those probably more than I should. But when I watch a game, um, you know, the day after, I'll always keep my my screenshot video rolling. And just whenever there's a play I think might be useful for any piece down the road, I'll always clip it. So I have a a database of like forty or fifty clips that don't have pieces for them yet, <laughs> just like on my laptop. And when the piece occurs to me or when, um, you know, someone buys it, then I'll start gathering those that, that work. So yeah, I definitely do the video work without pieces in mind. Question for you though, cause you, you said you, you use, I mean, I know I love your video work as well. <laughs> do you, when you're watching a game, will you see a play and be like, all right, there you go. That's that, you know, staggered screenplay they ran at 305 and write it down and build the piece around this one clip. Um, like is video a, fa- a starting block for pieces you write or is it only ever supporting evidence? Um, that's really interesting. I, so typically I think about, I, I come up with a central theme or idea first usually, um, which kind of then helps me go into making a title, interestingly enough for my piece, which helps me a lot. I can't, so titles. Yeah. I actually find it extremely difficult to write a piece without knowing the title. Mm. Yeah. Uh, so that actually helps me a lot. And then as I think about this theme out of that theme, which may or not may or may not be necessarily basketball first, because I'm a, uh, a literature nerd. So a yeah. lot of that stuff, uh, will be the theme central theme that I find is relating to whatever Raptors topic I'm talking about. Um, out of those thoughts come plays that I've seen and I'd think about those plays and then I write them down and I go, I know I've seen this play, uh, you know, recently and I will go back and I will find it. And that's typically how I think about inserting the videos. Usually it's not plays first, although sometimes if the article is like, you know, talking about here's how a player has expanded his game. Say if I was going to write about Siakam and, I uh, wanted to talk about his expanding game that I've noticed this season. Um, you know, something like his spin move that's become sort of a trademark for him. That might be kind of a more of a starting point for something like that for me. Mm-hmm. That's funny that you start with those themes. I mean, it makes sense because I know you do literature and film. But for me, when I when I add that kind of, you know, pop culture referential stuff on top, mm-hmm. it always comes at the very, very end. So, um, you know, I did a piece for Vice about La- about Pascal Siakam, actually. Mm-hmm. And I was thinking, like, trying to distill him down into one, you know, sentence. Like, here's a guy who um, has been awkward for a while and somehow became aesthetically pleasing. And then I would actually, I, I, my girlfriend was in the apartment and I was like, hey, Amanda, like, 
who's a movie character who was ugly for the first part of the movie and ended up being the hot one all along. Uh-huh. And she was like, oh, the um, the guy in Harry Potter, Neville Longbottom, ended up being hot because the actor is apparently very attractive now. Mm-hmm. And so that ended up being the lead. I always do that at the very, very end. It's funny that you do it the opposite direction. Interesting. Wow. Yeah, no, that's cool. I like, did you spend, this is one thing that I do too. I don't know if I've ever mentioned this on a podcast, but I, the longest part of um, an article for me usually is the last paragraph or sentence. I just like, I'm chewing my nails over the last sentence. I, I need to have it be, you know, the last line that readers r- will read and think, okay, this is a good send off. I will remember this. This kind of got the point across in the very last line. I like this. Do you think about that that way or does it does it not bother you as much <laughs> no it does it and honestly it's so easy it's so easy to fall into a cliche you know the last sentence of so many articles are we'll see if this continues basically in some yeah. shape and i find myself doing that a lot adding you know momentous adjectives and then i'll go back the next day and edit and be like this is just trash <laughs> <laughs> i i do i completely agree it's so hard to to toe that line between something that matters and ties it together without being cliche. Yeah, that's that's what um, that's partly why I st- I start with those themes a lot of the time because then it will give me both my beginning and my ending. Yeah, and it's what it's what's in the middle that's the meat of it. But if I know the beginning and the ending, then it's much easier for me to give you all the stuff that's in the middle. Oh, I completely agree. I had, a, I had a great lead that actually got cut by an editor who was smarter than me, but <laughs> a great lead about Kyle Lowry um, becoming sort of an MVP this late in his career. Mm-hmm. And the, the military history example I found was Horatio Nelson, because he was like a good admiral, never one of the best, until his mid-40s when he won the Battle of Trafalgar, because I don't know, like I, I have a master's in history, so I tie a lot of things to history. Ah, and cool. people don't know this, but most generals or admirals, when they have great success, are in their 20s. It's the same as sports. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the fact that Horatio Nelson did this in his 40s as well, there's an obvious connection. Um, but I sort of went on and on in the lead, and the editor was right to cut it. But <laughs> But then the last line was so easy because you could be like, you know, who knows if Lowry will – he may not ever lead a ship of the line into battle, but yada, yada, yada. It's just such an, you're right. It's such an easy way to end the piece because it's never going to be cliche if you're talking about Napoleonic war in a basketball piece. Yeah, it really is like a sandwich. Like you have those, you know, you have the two pieces of bread and there you go. They're sturdy. They're your foundation. They're there for you. If you know yeah. that stuff, it's just about, you know, the rest in the middle is up to you if you how you relate that and articulate that. But at least you'll have those two foundations that you can that you can end on. Sometimes even if the article is like, you know, I'm sure I know I've written things where I'm like, this could have been better, but like my lead and my outro are both quite good and I like them quite a bit and people will probably read it and be like yeah that, those are the things I remember so you know I liked it even if the stuff in the middle necessarily wasn't as strong well writing quality can make up for a lot I mean Lee Jenkins I thought was never as good an analyst about basketball nearly as a guy like Zach Lowe but he was the GOAT because he was just the best writer yeah and had the best access but <laughs> that yeah that helps but yeah definitely uh one of the best storytellers in in sports for sure 
Uh, man, I already miss him. Lee Jenkins. Yeah. Uh, That's something I'm so happy that Ethan Strauss is back for. Yeah. His, I mean, I remember he wrote a lead last year um, during the Warriors playoff run about how they started using centers for handoffs for threes. Mm. And he talked about World War I um, battleships and how they repurposed these battle, these cruisers that were militarily obsolete because of submarines. They repurposed them as aircraft carriers to huh. launch attacks from distance, right? It made sense with the shooting. Yeah. But it was just such quality writing that that stuck with me ever since. Huh. Yeah, that's – yeah. The, quali- the writing quality definitely um, definitely can make a, a piece just pop obviously that much more. I did also quickly want to talk about um, just the tone of your piece too. Well, I guess of your pieces in general. But it's it's interesting for me because it's um, – so I noticed in this piece, for example, the tone tends to be one of like casual professionalism. So like you'll use colloquial uh, colloquial words here and there like like peep this or whatever, right? But like at the same time, you never stray too far from formal language. And I wonder, is that like a conscience choice to maintain the balance or is it, is it difficult to do it if you're thinking about it or um, do you just kind of just go with it? Wow, that's a really good – I've never even thought about it to be honest. So <laughs> not a conscious choice. Um, okay, there we go. <laughs> That's a great question. Now I have to think about that. But uh, I think that's just maybe who I who I am. I try to be professional, um, but that's not who I am in reality. So maybe sometimes my my own personhood peeks through the cracks. Like I remember one of the first pieces I ever wrote for Raptors Republic. I referred to. Um, I don't even remember what I referred to something as a sad clown hand job. <laughs> and I, I, uh, Blake basically said, you know, if you want to use that, you can, but think about when you use phrases like that. And mm-hmm. so I haven't, but, um, I think if I was not, if I was just being myself mm-hmm. as a speaker, instead of as a writer, mm-hmm. I would definitely use a lot more phrases like that, you know, peep this, um, you know, I refer to Siakam and Kevin Durant as future hall of famers in the Ibaka piece, just sort of sneakily yeah um yeah i think that's more a peek at what i would be without any editing yeah it's something i struggled with that's why i'm interested in this topic uh i struggled with this early on especially when i was still kind of trying to find my voice as a writer um yeah because in general i'm kind of a fairly serious person and most of the time but i also love joking around so in articles it was like that as well where like my, my article would be tonally all over the place because I'd be like fairly serious about, you know, one paragraph, two paragraphs, and then bang, I'd hit you with a metaphor that's like a very try-hard joke. Um, <laughs> and uh, it usually just, you know, then you read it and the flow was not great because you'd be like, well, okay, this guy just went from a jokey, you know, he went from a serious tone to a jokey tone and it just doesn't really work. And I, and I really struggled with which one I wanted to try and use. And eventually I found that like it was much more natural for me to be more of the serious formal tone uh, more uh, typically than, than the other way around. Also because I'm not really that funny. My jokes aren't usually that good, but you know, I'll leave that stuff to, uh, <laughs> to Sean Woodley, but yeah. Yeah. I think... I mean, I think using different tones in the same piece is fine. You just have to practice doing it. Yeah. Like, if it's your first time writing a basketball article and you're flipping between 
serious and jokey, it's going to be awkward, but it would be awkward if you were serious or you were jokey all the time anyway. Like it's just mm-hmm. going to be awkward. Yeah. I think if you flip between tones, but you, you do it a lot, you write all the time, you know, you put in your Gladwell 10,000 hours or whatever, it's going to work. Um, you just sort of need to, like you said, you need to have your voice as a writer, even if your voice changes. Yeah, that that's an interesting thing too. The evolution of a voice, um, which I think is is just like the rest of anybody. Like you're gonna, your voice will grow as you grow as a person, as your writing grows, as you improve. Yeah, I really do think the the voice is always one of the most interesting things for me because um, you wonder. Obviously, a lot of professional uh, people who are already in you know whatever industry that are writers, like they've found their voice by then. But it's something that a lot of writers struggle with, like for a long time. Like, there's no set time for you for when you, you know, are still kind of figuring things out to the point where you have now, you know, you're comfortable in your own voice and you're like, this is this is me. This is how I write. This is what it comes out. You know, I'm an Oxford comma person or I'm not. Things like that. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah. So, yeah, it's 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 cool because sometimes it takes people a long time and then uh, you know others um, get into it a little quicker. So, yeah. yeah. And I mean, you're always like, I, I assume everybody is like me in that every once in a while you'll read something that you used to love and just all of a sudden you hate your tone and voice and writing and everything. Yep. Like even when you have your voice, you can still be disgusted by it. <laughs> yep, that happens. Uh, almost everything I write, as soon as I press send, I'm like, well, that's probably garbage. I'm going to try <laughs> and not think about it now. Yeah. <laughs> All right, uh, we're running out of time here, so um, I just want to thank you for coming on again, Lewis. I really appreciate it. Is there anything you want to plug before we go? Uh, uh, <laughs> no, man, I, I don't really have a ton in the pipeline right now. Wish I did. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure more will be coming because uh, you always seem to have uh, something pop up uh, sooner or later, so I, <laughs> I, I will try to uh, push that as well because everything you write I really enjoy, so... Um, oh man, thank you. And thank you so much for this is being super fun. It's always fun to nerd out about, you know, your own stuff and and how it get how it gets made. So I really appreciate it. Yeah, for sure. Hopefully uh, I'll have to have you back on soon. Eventually I want to have every single like Raptors Republic person have come on here and then maybe at, at that point once that happens, I can like do like a big podcast where we have like as many of us as I can bring on and then we can okay. all just like be a garbling mess of like Raptorsness. That would be intense um it'll it'll be like um those chats that you do except it'll be like in podcast form (laughs) yeah i mean those involve a lot of editing to make them (laughs) (laughs) oh god yeah uh yeah i can imagine um (laughs) okay so yeah you can find this podcast it's called the writer's write podcast you can find it on anchor.fm or the anchor app if you have it uh you can also find it on apple podcasts you can follow the podcast on Twitter at Writers Write Pod, where links to the episodes will be posted, as well as links to my guests' articles. Until then, you can follow me at Howvolution on Twitter, and you can find my own online work at Raptors Republic, B-Ball Breakdown occasionally, and Scene Creek if you like movies. Thank you for listening. Have a good day. Shoot.